Welcome to Unashamed Unafraid, a show unashamed about sexual addiction recovery and unafraid of coming into Christ for healing. Where we talk about real recovery stories, answer anonymous questions with experts, and share resources that actually work. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm your co-host, James. And we are Unashamed Unafraid. So, uh, what up, James? How you doing, Steve? Doing so good. So, um... One qualification or thing that I like to say about all of our outsiders and the volunteers helped on the unashamed uh, team is we got some recovery thugs. Oh, you know what I mean? Are at it. <laughs> <laughs> we at it. <laughs> like people are like, oh, I know some people in recovery. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> but you ain't but got we, no idea. We got some gangsters to introduce you to. <laughs> you, you have no idea, right? So uh, just... If you uh, real recognize real, as they say in the rap game, um, if you want to talk real recovery, I'm not talking raw, like in the BS, you know, circles around it or can't get out of the drama or mm-hmm. stuck in the darkness. I'm talking like you cannot make this up. This yeah. is what real time recovery looks like. Amen. It's Pete, baby. It's Pete. Yeah. It gives you the the living model of stepping into recovery and making it happen. And and it gets said half in the episode. It talks a lot about brotherhood, but I, I want to bring this up because it's not clear. I think in the episode we name it. So it, to have strength and to come and feel supported and share his story, there were some of his really close recovery brothers who right. happen to be some folks we know, but um, just on the call witness on the call with him here just to witness mm-hmm. and to be with him. And that speaks to real the recognize of the depth yeah. of the brotherhood, not battling alone. Like it was literally happening in real time, right? Walking it, talking it, being it, doing it. We invite you to get in the studio with Pete. Give us five stars on iTunes. That's how the world rates us. Follow us on socials at unashamed unafraid. And if you'd like to join us in the bonus content and donate, we are a, a five Oh, one C three nonprofit, um, which means uh, you can donate to us the tax writer of whole deal, and we do scholarships. Uh, so if you are in need of scholarships to boot camp, which gets talked about a lot on this episode, or um, other things we find helpful in recovery, go to unashamedunafraid.com slash scholarships or slash donate to become an outsider and join us in the bonus content. And with that, Kurt Franklin would say our intro has been too long, and we will get in the studio with our good friend Pete. Pete, my brother, how are you? Doing well, doing good. I'm not doing fine because that's something Matthew West would uh, chastise me for saying. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Hashtag, if you don't listen to Matthew West and all of his music, I don't know, it's Broken Things to Mend, one of my favorites. Favorite Matthew West song for you, Pete? Well, I like the I'm fine because it uh, wakens up, woke me up and realized the first time I listened to that boot camp, I was like, you know what? I'm just a bench warmer at church i need to dig in a little deeper and when people ask me how i'm doing i don't need to say i'm fine but uh ct who you all know taught me to instead ask the question how's your heart because that's a question that is uh more involved so my heart is good today i'm grateful to be surrounded by all you guys and grateful to i invited two guests who are not not new to the show but theron and seth both have a big part of my story so i wanted them on and evan hathaway does too who's going to be on an episode uh before mine airs i would imagine hitting missy's story that's and, correct uh, Evan couldn't be here tonight but he's here in spirit so excited to be with all my brothers so 
Pete, there's already like this vibe off of you, you know? Um, we have a quote we like to throw around that you meet, you know, men in positions of authority and then you meet men of authority. And there, there is a, a sense of you, you know, um, uh, like just like in Gladiator when you're like, oh, that dude's for real. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that you didn't always have this line of Judah, passion of God, also sweet and kind spirit radiating off you. I imagine that that's not how it's always been. Uh, no. <laughs> nope. Only re- more recently in the past year or so did I finally wake up. So uh, tell us the story. Tell, tell us where it starts. Tell us what happened. So I've been in a number of 12-step groups, and I've gone and written out my my fourth-step inventory many times and a first-step inventory as well. And it always confused me because um, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church, we're taught that uh, we're baptized at age eight. And pr- prior to age eight, we're not culpable and we can't be, uh, that we're free of Satan's temptations. But when I look at my story, it, there isn't a thought that I've had where I wasn't drawn to towards curiosity about my own body or really curiosity um, towards women's bodies either. Uh, certainly as a kid, I didn't know what any of that was or what it meant um, as I went through puberty. And as I got older, I started to recognize what that was. And and later on, it, it corrupted and turned into lust. So when I look back on that story, what I'm really starting to understand now is that addiction is a symptom, just like a cough or is, is to a, a pneumonia or a very serious lung disease. And what I really needed to understand was the, the root of the story. So I've spent considerable time digging in and trying to figure out where did it all begin and why. There's a couple of contributing factors, and um, mom and dad are probably going to listen to this, so um, I'll prep them prior to doing so. This isn't a, a bag on you or anything. And I'll name really quick, uh, there's both sides of the story, right? So on this episode, we may talk about the harm, but there were also a lot of good things that mom and dad did, and so there's you know, doing a lot of trauma work with people. It's never all good, all bad. It's never, so we know here we're trying to get to the root of where did addiction come from for you? And that, but I just want to name the grace, not only for your parents when they listen, like I know they did good things and all that, but also for everyone who's having that conversation of trying to explore their story. Right. right? It's not about like assigning blame or anything like that. This is really just understanding what shaped me and and made me the person that I am today. And sometimes, you know, negative experiences, obviously they shape how we show up in the world. A hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. So giving that grace to your parents and to all the parents, tell us about the roots. Yeah, thank you. So when I was four years old, my dad had the opportunity to go to Taiwan, the University of Taiwan, and do a um, kind of like an internship. He was an exchange uh, librarian at at the University of BYU. And so he just did an exchange um, with somebody there in Taiwan and in, in University of Taipei. So at age four, here I am a kid, you know, not yet potty trained in a Chinese immersion school. There's not much English. And mm. uh, one of the things, just kind of a funny story that is also actually has quite a bit of trauma to it is um, the way they potty train there is they strap you down to a little toilet and they strap all the kids in a row and they blow a whistle and all the kids tinkle and they get to take off their seatbelts and they get to go play. I wasn't trained that way. And so I had no freaking idea what was going on. And I'm scared enough. My parents had dropped me off with people that don't speak my language, don't look like anything that I've seen in my earlier childhood. 
And um, it's one of the earliest memories I, I have is sitting there strapped to that toilet and really angry, just furious that my parents had abandoned me, that now I'm being, I don't even know what they want from me. And um, I, I write a lot of blogs. And one of the ones I titled a few weeks ago was um, Beyond the Outside of an Inside Joke. And that really was where it started. And that's what it felt like. So that was Taiwan. So I finally start learning some Taiwanese and we come to back to the United States. And um, suddenly I'm in, a, in an English school in kindergarten and my brother doesn't want to speak Chinese to me anymore because when we do, we get made fun of by other kids. This was, uh, we lived in Utah County. This is right after the Vietnam war. There were a lot of things that we were called, um, being lovers of, uh, of Asian people mm -hmm. and speaking Chinese. And so he was very ashamed and very embarrassed by that. Maybe not ashamed, but embarrassed by it. And so he told me to stop speaking to him. So I had this dialogue with my brother and it kind of uh, Chinglish between Chinese and English. And now I can only speak in English and I'm only five years old. So I get thrown into school. I get a really good friend um, who I just love to death. And he's got a couple of brothers and I'm just part of their family. You know, I can go to their house all afternoon. They can come to my house all afternoon. And so kindergarten turned out to be really good. And that friend uh, basically kind of redeemed me in a sense. And his family redeemed me. He had an older sister who uh, looked out for us and took care of us and things. I had a huge crush on her. And, uh, but about middle of first grade, they suddenly announced that they were moving and they weren't just moving like a few States away. They were moving to, to Alaska. So they leave. So here's my support group that I've had and they're gone. So there's kind of this theme that starts to develop. And I was a loner of a kid for a little while. And, uh, then this, this short kid who was a bit of a bully, not a bit, he was a huge bully. Uh, he decides that I'm going to be his friend. And his idea of friendship is get me in trouble all the time, blame everything on me. And um, again, I'm telling my side of the story, but uh, it was very emotionally abusive to me. It was often physically abusive. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about boys that age in that uh, neighborhood about kicking each other in the balls as hard as you can, as often as you can. But it was a uh, thrice to four times a day occurrence at least. And um, I just didn't quite understand that aggression. It was like, where is this coming from? Because it wasn't something that we did at my house. I'm going to keep the story super short because it's a deep one, but over the years, uh, through elementary school, he's constantly getting me in trouble. He's constantly um, coming up with schemes. I find myself in the principal's office. I don't even know why I'm there. And the principal starts to tell me why I'm there. And I realize that I've been pulled into a scheme that I wasn't even aware of. And I'm angry and I'm mad. And you know, my mom has to come get me. And, and we're not supposed to play with each other for a few days. And then he just comes back aggressively. And, and it's always what he wanted to do. If I was doing piano lessons or violin lessons, he would just be constantly at the door knocking like, hey, are you done yet? Hey, are you done yet? Can you go faster? Just really um, what I would consider dysfunctional or or um, just sucked all the oxygen out of the room for me. It got a little worse into junior high uh, years. It could have been sixth or seventh grade. I'm not exactly sure what, what year, but it was apparent that he was going to his grandparents' house regularly and his grandparents were taking in foster kids. And it becomes apparent that that my friend is suddenly getting extremely interested in sexuality and masturbation and uh, is constantly daring me to do things that I don't want to do. And it just kind of goes on and on. And it would start out with simple things like, hey, if you're my friend, you'll swear. And I'm like, well, I don't swear. It's like, well, if you don't swear, you can't be my friend. And then it would escalate up to, if you're really my friend, you're going to steal something from the grocery store. I'm like, I'm not going to steal something from the grocery store. And he just bugged me and bugged me and bugged me. So finally I'd go over to like the, the candy, um, bulk candy jar, 
and like pull out like a little root beer thing or whatever. So he'd leave me alone. And there's just this constant barrage like that, just over and over again with everything. It's just exhausting. And, uh, but around sixth or seventh grade, another kid moves into the neighborhood and he's, his mom's been married multiple times. His mom's extremely attractive and she really pays a lot of attention to kids, which is great because my mom was having kids every two years and she's busy with church callings and just always on the phone when we're home or, or busy doing, you know, cooking a meal for someone or something, which is all good things, but emotionally she's just not really there. So I'm constantly looking and craving this attention from other women, whether it be a substitute teacher at school or a student teacher at school, any woman that'll pay attention to me is good. So she pays a lot of attention to us and she keeps inviting us over to her house. And her son was really clearly like, I mean, my, my friend was kind of at one level. This kid was at a whole nother level of sexual experimentation. And he and my friend start having this secret club that they won't tell me about. And um, he and my friend create this special club and they won't tell me about it. And they keep telling me that I'm not man enough to be in the club. And they, and they just constantly are whispering right in front of me. They're doing inside jokes. And I'm just kind of sitting there like, what is going on? You know, here I had this friend finally, and now he's being a real jerk like what's going on. So I, I beg and I plead to become part of their club and they finally say, okay, so the story I'm going to tell now didn't come out to about 10 years ago in therapy. Uh, prior to that, I, I didn't remember a single thing about it. Um, and it's kind of a painful one. And that's why I've got some of my friends on the phone that I do because they've, they've had some, some similar stories that were much worse than mine, but regardless, the, the impact to me was, was detrimental. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring your friend in right now. So in, recording Theron's story, I said, which is still to date one of my favorite stories we've ever recorded for me personally, just like for my own recovery, there's something about Theron's story that lands. And I said, you know, Theron, I, I feel, you know, sheepish sharing my story and stuff because you, your trauma was so much worse than mine. And so I kind of feel dumb you know, or small talking about mine or that it affected me as much as it did. And, um, he was, uh, very bold and graceful, but very direct in correcting me and saying, no, no, we don't compare trauma. Everyone's trauma is big. It matters. So I'm actually not going to agree with you and, and let us hold this moment. And with your friends here sacred in that P what happened to you mattered that it is that big as big as everyone else's trauma and what they've experienced here. Yeah. Thanks for that qualification. Cause when I heard Theron's story the first time I did think all those things. And um, as I've gotten to know him better and he's been with me to dig deep into it um, at advanced boot camp and through texts and phone calls. Um, yeah. I'm, I mean, my pain is my pain and my mess is my message and, and I'm grateful for it now. But so what happened, this is around seventh grade. I honestly don't remember exactly when, uh, there's an afternoon and they invite every invite me and a couple other boys over for lunch and they go down in the basement and they lock the basement door and I'm like, all right, whatever. And they want to start playing games and stuff. And, but they said, but before we do, we have to initiate you. And, uh, it got started getting really weird. So he pulled out like this Indian skull and made me put my hand on the skull and swear that what, what's going to happen, I would never tell anybody and I'd never divulge or, or discuss or else this Indian would haunt me for my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, this is stupid. I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, in church, they teach us not to, not to do things like that. So I start to leave and they're like, well, if you leave, you can never come back. And they're begging and they're pleading. And they're like, don't worry, it's going to be fine. So I, I eventually do the swearing of the, on the Indian's head. And 
one thing leads to another. I won't go into graphic detail here, but the bottom line is people's clothes are coming off. Boys are starting to do things to each other that I haven't seen boys do to each other. And um, they're trying to get me to do it as well. And I don't want to do it. And I tell them repeatedly, I don't want to do it. And I could tell them repeatedly, I want to leave. And they would say, well, just do this one little thing. And if you'll do this one little thing, we'll leave you alone. And it would be something innocuous. So I'd say, fine, that's fine. And, um, but I really didn't want to stick around. And I was like, if this is going to keep going on, like I'm out of here. And they just kept pressing and pressing. And eventually I gave in and did a few things. I wasn't happy about it. I was getting more and more furious by the moment. And the second his mom started pounding on the door saying lunch was ready, like everyone kind of did a no crap moment and started getting their clothes on real quick. And I bolted for the door and I was out the door and I was running home. They caught up to me, tackled me to the ground and held me there. And at this time, I'm just crying. I'm furious. My, my face is red. I feel like I'm 110 degrees, just ready to kill somebody. And they're telling me, if you say anything about what's happened today, your parents are going to be in trouble. We're going to be in trouble. Our parents are going to be in trouble. People are going to go to jail. You're going to have to go through before a judge at a court and explain what happened. So don't ever say anything because if you ever do, you know, that's the end. So I'm like, now what? You know, I go home and my mom kind of sees I'm upset. I just stormed my room and I was furious. I was so angry, so pissed off. And it just destroyed me. I mean, this is not what I was brought up to do. This isn't the, I was like, where are you, God? Like, what's going on here? You know, what the hell was that? And why did I have to be involved in that? And why are these guys, why was it so normal to them? Why did they think it was okay to do to me? They're supposed to be my friends. So I'm just angry and I'm furious and I start to make agreements with God. Or I think I'm making agreements to God. I think I was really starting to make agreements with Satan. But I said, okay, I'm never going to tell anyone about this ever. In fact, I'm going to try and forget it ever happened. But I promise I'll never do this to another kid. And I promise that I'll never talk about this. And I'm actually going to promise that I'm never going to think about it again. And I, I don't ever want to treat somebody the way I've just been treated. Things get kind of... Um, escalated in other areas of life and both those boys end up uh going before the courts and it comes out that that they had been sexually molested um the one kid who was the newer kid in the neighborhood he got sent uh sent away for a little while so then the, the shame and, and the guilt of this is even deeper like if i say anything that's what's gonna happen to me they're gonna whisk me away i'm gonna go mm. to some psychiatric ward and mm -hmm. or some boys school or whatever it is and, and be um and have to go through all that so I start to become very effective at just sealing this up, but I'm really angry all the time. And I think my parents, if you, they, they don't remember because I've asked them, but I would imagine just because I remembered them asking me like, what's wrong? What's going on? Like, why have you changed? Because I was so yeah. angry at everyone. I was so furious with everyone. And it took a long time for that to quiet down some, but it never really did quiet down. And so um, thankfully we moved shortly after that. Uh, we moved to to Texas. So in one year, I go from uh, Orem, Utah, everyone's LDS. And and actually, I need to pause right there. In our ward at the time, there would occasionally be a man, a father, a husband, who would be caught with pornography. I remember this one guy, his wife found it in his work truck, and the kids would show us where it was in the work truck. And um, that gossip would just go throughout this tight little church-knit community yeah, yeah. about this guy. So he was a pervert. He was disgusting. So I'm like, well, I'm never going to do that stuff because that's gross and disgusting. And I don't want to be labeled a pervert. But um, so let me, let me get back to the story. So I moved from from Orem, Utah, where everyone is LDS, to College Station, Texas. And before we the, go to this other chapter, 
kind of knowing what you know now and looking back on it, like what would you say were the messages you got about yourself? Oh man, I'm unworthy. I'm not worthy of God's love. I've done, I've done the most abhorred thing and I allowed the most abhorred things to happen to me. So that was part of the agreement I made too. Is like, okay, God, I, I recognize I'm probably not going to hit, hit the top tiers of heaven, but I'm going to try my best to do okay. I can't undo what's been done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it sounds like part of that narrative was like, uh, that it's something you did. It's not something that happened to you. Yeah. I was convinced that I was culpable for what had happened Yeah, until, until I went through therapy 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and really until advanced boot camp, I still carried some of that with me that somehow I was supposed to prevent it. Yeah. So one of the, uh, let me back up one, one minute. So one of the other things that would happen is, um, my quote unquote friend, who's such a turd and, and I have a lot of grace for him. Uh, he clearly had a lot of bad things happen to him. I'm sure there's a story there. Yeah. Yeah. And if he ever hears this, you know, I hope, I really hope he found recovery. I hope he's found his tribe of people and I hope he's, he's been able to dig through all that and sort it out. But he would do things like, uh, if he knew I had a crush on a girl, he'd write notes to her from me and he'd pass it to her. And so then the girls are, you know, the girls with her friends and they're looking over me and giggling and I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, Oh, cool. She likes me too. Or something. I don't know. Yeah. So later on, he tells me what's going on. And one of the girls confronted me and she threw the letter at me. She said, stop writing this crap. And it, cause it was kind of vulgar and it was yeah. uh, things that I wanted to do to her and stuff. And so that was, so I, I had no luck with the ladies. We'll put it that way in Utah. So we moved to Texas college station. It's kind of a cool place. Top guns just come out. Um, Anytime boys can get their shirts off and play volleyball, we're doing it. And it's just, uh, it's this tight knit little LDS community because the school is predominantly uh, Southern Baptist. Mm -hmm. And it, and that's kind of weird too, because their perception of us is that we're not Christians and that we're evil and, you know, we're cults and things like that. So that, that was kind of an interesting twist, but we're this tight knit little LDS community. And now everyone's kind of pulling for each other, which is cool. And uh, for the first time, I have a girl that has a major crush on me to where she's dedicating songs to me on the radio on Friday nights. The song, Found Out I've Got a Crush on You, like anytime I heard it on the radio, I'd be like, and now a special dedication to Pete. You know who you are. I'm your secret admirer. And, and so for those of you those of you who don't know, um, back in the day, like in James's day <laughs> and Pete, you know, back with these old guys there you know there was you had to listen to songs on the radio so you couldn't right. jump on spotify right. or your smartphone or whatever and and people would you would call in and request songs or dedicate songs it was yeah. a, it, well and you had to sit age. you had to sit with your tape recorder ready to hit record the second that the song that you really liked started and the dj was talking over the first 5 10 seconds of your favorite song and then they would cut off your favorite song like 10 seconds too early. So I, I just wanted to make sure we identified the largest pieces of trauma in right. your stories. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah, so I have you, a so song stuck in my head for months. You couldn't yeah, find so out what the song was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we're living a high life, you know. The 
we're singing uh, all the songs from Top Gun to the girls with their shirts off while we're playing volleyball. And there's a girl that I really like, but her best friend is this girl who has a crush on me. So it's kind of this bizarre thing because I really want the girl I like to like me back, but she's not going to uh, step on her step on her sister. So um, that was kind of weird, but it was fun too. It was, it was nice to be wanted by a girl instead of, you know, chasing girls that thought I was just weird and, and could kind of, uh, I mean, I'm not casting judgment, but I can see looking back that there was something about me that probably most good girls uh, just saw and, or felt or something. And we're just kind of like, hmm, something's a little different with, with that kid um, because I hadn't dealt with the trauma. And maybe I'm projecting that, but uh, I'll talk more about that here in a minute with my wife and, and how she kind of fills the subliminal what's going on underneath the surface. I want to add in that you're not crazy. Um, Lecrae talks about it in his first book. So he was molested as a kid as well. And he said there was like almost this like secret radar that everyone had that they could ping off of people. Like, Hey, I, I, I've got, I've got baggage. Oh, you have baggage too. Now we can't have this knowing, um, right. And a sense. And so, no, I don't think you're crazy. All right. Thanks for the validation. Appreciate that. So we're in Texas, and this is, uh, I don't know how many of you who grew up in Utah moved to Texas. This is a major culture shock again. This is a new language. People are saying y'all. People are talking faster than I've ever heard people talk before. And they're talking slower than I've ever heard talk before. And uh, they're using words that don't make any sense to me. Like I remember I was literally sitting in my physical science class, and our teacher had this really thick, thick um, Southern accent. And I was just looking at her. It was like I was back in Taiwan. Like I didn't know what she was saying, <laughs> and she'd be looking yeah. right at me and she'd say, "What's wrong with you?" I'm, I don't know. You know, I don't understand what you're saying. And so I was kind of on her crap list from from day one because I didn't understand what she's saying. So I'm learning all these new words. I'm learning if you call it a drink a pop, that somebody will literally pop you on the head with their fingers. So I got to call them a, a Coke, even though it's a Pepsi or a Sprite or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning all this new lingo and I'm learning new language and I'm learning a new culture that's that's not predominantly LDS. And then my dad gets a job at Columbia University. So within nine months, didn't even unpack some boxes. We're moving to New Jersey. So from Orm, Utah to College Station, Texas to New Jersey. And um, the only thing I knew about New Jersey was from a, a really old show called Hill Street Blues, where somebody gets murdered at least once every episode. So I'm thinking, great, we're going to go to this high school where I'm going to get murdered. And it's going to be a bunch of street thugs and drug dealers. Well, um, my dad had done his research and he'd found the school that had the highest number of kids going to college um, from high school. So he moved us there. And this was like literally Hollywood 90210. Man, all the references in the 80s. Sorry, guys. But um, we literally are living on the wrong side of the tracks in the sense that my dad um, on his salary, which was a good salary compared to what he'd been making before, but compared to the multimillionaires that we were moving in with, um, you know, there's only one part of town we could live in. So now I'm in this town and, and again, it's a whole new slang. It's a whole new lingo. I'm going to school. Now my brother and I are the only two LDS kids in our high school. And uh, one of the teachers said we're the only ones who that he knew of in, in many, many years. And so now we're in this school and, and you know, it's little things like you're in a uh, history class and they start talking about um, some of the early prophets of the church. And they're just saying stuff that's like crazy. And so I'm like, well, do I raise my hand and correct this guy or do I let it go? And so I raised my hand to correct him. And, you know, he just totally peels me apart in front of the whole class. And I realize I don't really know what, a whole lot about my religion as much as I should, or or maybe he's just lying or whatever. So I'm going through all these awkward things and this is right during puberty, but I get my first girlfriend and um, she's great. I mean, she knew how to kiss. She knew how to uh, really fire me up. And um, 
and it was just crazy but it was uh, it was like off and then on again so she would totally fall in love with me and everything would be crazy and great and then she would say we're breaking up and she'd pull away and she'd say we're you know we're great and this is back in the good old days no cell phones one phone line to the house and my dad's now in the bishopric and my brother's got a girlfriend too so we're, we're you know you're trying to navigate this one phone line for the whole family anyway she was great it was like love cocaine i was like finally someone gets me and there's emotions inside of me i've never felt before and i have no idea what to do with that are just going off the charts insane so um we finally break up and i and it's a horrible breakup for me i mean didn't really recover from it for probably 10 years so i have this first girlfriend she breaks up with me i go through a lot of depression i don't have any friends um at school and, and uh get suicidal get really deep and i'm um, just again not feeling worthy not feeling like i'm, I'm worthy of people loving me or caring for me I eventually get a, a really good friend and, and things go well. Uh, so there aren't LDS girls to date. So I'm dating a lot of non-LDS girls and there's a different different uh, expectations in a relationship than just holding hands and talking on the phone. So I get in some trouble there and, um, you know, my dad's my bishop. So I've got to go to my dad and, and work it through. But eventually I get on a mission, which was awesome for the LDS church. Mm -hmm. And I get sent down to um, to Arizona. And it's it starts out rough because I hadn't, dug deep on all the things I needed to to clear up in my life. But I eventually, uh, I got really, really sick. I was stung by a scorpion and I was sick for a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. And so I pulled out James E. Talmadge, uh, Jesus the Christ, and I dive in. For the first time in my life, I'm finally understanding who Jesus Christ is as a person. And, um, and I have a lot of time just to dedicate to that. And so I go to my mission president and I say, this is something I really want out of my life, the masturbation and the the, uh, I didn't have pornography, but I had my brain and I had a very active imagination. And it was just a constant, like anywhere I was, I had my brain. I didn't, I didn't need pornography. So there wasn't like I, you know, like some kids now may get addicted to pornography. They, they go on a mission where they have no access to it. And so they get a break from it. I didn't get a break. My brain was constantly going. But I, I finally, I really start to feel and get to know who Jesus is. I start to feel a lot of hope. And I start to finally get recognized as like a leader in, in within the mission. I come home off my mission. I, I'm again put into leadership con callings. And um, by then, though, the internet is starting to, to come about. And I get a computer. And I finally see some pornography for the first time in my life. But the internet speeds are so slow. There's It's not really a big factor. I'm still really struggling with this uh, a fixation on a woman and and um, just the imagine active imagination of it. So yeah. I... I get cleaned up a little bit. I get married, um, meet a, a really awesome woman. And, um, you know, I'm thinking this is going to cure me. And then I'm not the first person on this podcast to say that. And it doesn't. And so I go through these constant cycles of feeling guilty. I go confess to the bishop to, to, he's my pastor. And he, uh, you know, he says, just don't do it anymore. Try and find new hobbies. So it's just not working for me. Um, and, uh, so fast forward, I get this job where I'm traveling globally, and one of my jobs was to go and hire um, receptionists for every one of our offices globally. And so I'm hiring cute young girls who have an fixation on me because I'm the boss and I'm this American guy. And so I'm getting a lot of attention, which I really appreciate and love. There's prostitutes in uh, Asia. I didn't ever go down that route because I, being in the, the career that I was in, I was able to talk to a lot of State Department people, and they told me how many times they had uh, Americans were getting blackmailed by 
by prostitutes. They would take pictures and send it to your wife or threaten to send it to your wife if you didn't pay them. So I was never going to go down that road, but I certainly was really fixated with it and constantly on the streets in China or in Singapore or wherever, you're just constantly, people are walking up to you and wanting you to do it. So I'm very fixated on that. By now, pornography is becoming a real problem because I'm traveling for a couple of weeks at a time. I'm constantly jet lagged. I'm not, you know, I'm not home. When I am home, I'm jet lagged. I'm, I'm focused on other things. And I have an admin in, um, in where, where I'm living. And she and I develop this emotional relationship. And it gets, uh, she, she liked calling herself my work wife. And it was, you know, I'd be at home. I'm ashamed to talk about this, but it's, it's uh, I own it. But I'd be at home. My kids are on the bed with us. We're watching a movie or whatever as a family. I'm on the phone with my, my admin. I'm playing a game on the phone or texting her or whatever. And my wife starts to get really upset about it. So we're talking about it. And this is where the story is going to going to move quickly into healing and hope. So we're talking about it. I tell her she probably needs some therapy because she's so jealous. So she goes to therapist and the therapist tells her this, talks to her for a little bit. And she tells her the story about a guy who uh, tried apologizing to his wife with flowers, tried apologizing, all these different things with her. Finally, she came home from work one day and he had the computer on the front lawn and had smashed it up with the sledgehammer. And my wife's telling me the story. She's like, I have no idea why my therapist told me that story. It's kind of weird. I don't understand it. I'm furious. I'm like, how dare this therapist diagnose that I've got a problem with pornography? So I make an appointment. I go in and talk to her and I, I, you know, I confront her and she's like, I'm not, I don't know you. I've never met you. I I just told her that story because I wanted to talk about the difference between um, a true apology and, and, um, and, and where someone's heart is. But she's like, do you have a problem? I said, I don't know. So she says, she pulls out the essay. I think it's 21 question Air. I look at all yeah. of them. I'm not interested in kids or animals and I've never had a prostitute. So I'm good. I'm not an addict, but she starts working with me. She starts introducing me to 12 steps and I eventually start going to 12 step groups, but I go close to my work, not my home. Um, fast forward. I moved down here to Arizona. And um, when I walk into my first meeting, 12 step meeting, everyone knows me because I look just like my brother. So my anonymity has gone. And that's when I fir- finally start like really work hanging out with guys who are in recovery and um, I got into an online program called SAL, and through that I met this this awesome guy who's now a uh, he's a Catholic deacon actually who invited me to the first boot camp. And I remember walking to the first boot camp, and I'm like, okay, I got this down. I've been through the twelve steps a couple times. I've had a sponsor. Wait, you can't say awesome guy and not give him a shout out. <laughs> well, his name's Tony, and he knows who he is. Yeah, what up, Tony? We see you. Yeah, man. So Tony's awesome. And, and I remember I was going to cancel like two weeks before. And Tony said, I can't remember his exact words, but he basically said, well, you can do that, but you really got to think about what's the most important thing in your life. And if you feel like canceling for work is the most important thing in your life, then you go ahead. So it's like, crap, I can't back out of that. So I show up to uh, to boot camp, and I'm thinking, I've been through 12-step meetings. I've been through everything. Like, I'm not going to learn anything. Like this convention of, of LDS guys sitting around singing hymns. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, waiting for Kumbaya. And then boom, first session dive right in. Uh, Theron gets up and tells a story and I'm like, holy crap. Okay. This is going to get real. This is awesome. Awesome and scary at the same time. Cause I've kind of told my story to some people, but I've never told my story in depth. And so the first boot camp was good. It kind of woke me up, but the second boot camp was advanced and we dove deep into And trauma. real quick disclaimer about boot camp: You don't have to share anything about your personal story. Right. That was just that a was, choice that, that Theron made. made. Sorry, because yes. everyone's worried they're going to go up there and, and it's like, great, you're sitting here with a group of four guys. Say your deepest secrets of when you were molested or cheated on your wife. Not how it goes. But anyways, baller move, Theron, but keep going. 
So you go to advanced. Well, let me back up real fast. So I yeah. go up to Theron afterwards and he just hugs me for like a minute. And I've, you know, my dad's giving me hugs. I've never been hugged for a minute. And um, like, I just felt like God was holding me and was saying, it's going to be okay. Like you're on a, you're on a different track now. This is something different and new and it's going to be better. Mm. And I uh, spent a lot of time in the vows of silence writing. I, I made some commitments that I was going to, I'd written a blog before just about business stuff. And, and God was saying, you need to start writing again. So I was like, okay. So I wrote down all these commitments. So I go home, everything's great for like a week or two, you know, get back into life. I kind of forget about things. Then I go to advanced boot camp. Um, thanks to Chris calling me like day before and saying, Hey, we got a spot. We got a scholarship. I think you need to come. And so I, I rearranged my life to get out there. Just all Love kinds you, of Chris. miracles happened to get me there. Yeah, Uncle Hope, baby. Love all you guys. So, so I go to the advanced and we go super deep on uh, trauma and I go revisit my, my everything. And while I'm sitting there by the lake um, up at boot camp, like Christ showed me a different perspective of my, of the day I was abused um, physically. And I saw that Christ was there with me on the lawn when I was getting pummeled by my friends and held down and, and threatened. He showed me that he was sitting in my room with me when I was bawling and crying and just furious and felt like I was no good. And he just showed me that he'd been with me this whole time. He'd been sitting there. And there's nothing that you can't take care of. Mm. And we did this uh, really cool thing where I think it was you, Steve, and told us to go find a piece of wood that represented our our trauma. And I made a cross out of uh, two sticks of wood and some grass. And then we all went and threw it in the fire. And um, a lot of guys were saying, like, you know, just using kind of nice words. <laughs> I can't remember if it was Theron first or if it was me, but one of us dropped the F-bomb and threw it in the fire and, and it really did feel like all of a sudden I felt 10 pounds lighter. Like just felt like I don't have to carry that anymore. Christ was there. He paid for it already. And I can't sit there and argue with him about the bill. It's done. So I reopened my book. When I got home, I reopened my first book from boot camp. I looked at my second book and I was like, okay, I made all these commitments and I didn't do any of them. So I just started texting people immediately. And it started out with two or three people. Now I text, sent out a text to over a hundred people that are just my story of my recovery and my heart and, and things that are affecting me or have affected me, or if I'm working with somebody, something that's affected them, that's reminded me. And by doing that, I started to get people who, who were responding back. And I started learning the power of doing a true surrender prayer, which is something you learn in SA a, and uh, other groups from Alcoholics Anonymous, which is where I just am with you. And I'll be like, hey, Stephen, I tell you my heart for the day. You tell me your heart for the day. And then I say, God, with Stephen as my witness, today I surrender my life to you. I surrender lust, yeah. I surrender my powerlessness over it. I surrender anxiety. I surrender my procrastination at work. I surrender my anger. I surrender whatever it is that day. And I give it to you, God, freely. And then I pray for Stephen or whoever I'm talking to on the phone that their life will be good. So it's a 12 steps. So it's basically you're running through all 12 steps in one prayer. And it's pretty awesome because every time I do that, I just recognize I don't have to have the answers. I tried for my whole life to have the answers. I don't have them. Mm. Um, mm. They've been given to me, but I, they're no, they don't, I don't own them. I can borrow them when I surrender myself to God and I can share them with others. But that's the only time I can be in recovery is if I'm constantly working at reaching out and, and getting to know other people. So I've been trying to bring the message home to my local area. There aren't any guys um, here that have been to boot camp, but I'm hoping to, we'll, we'll see if that changes here in two weeks up in uh, Williams, Arizona. 
but I constantly stay in contact with these guys. Um, I've got, I'm in the Boise Band of Brothers. I've been adopted. Got to go up to Boise Boot Camp last year. That's why Seth's on the call and uh, others. And it's um, it's just has changed my life. And I can't, it just surprises me because I've been to a lot of different groups. And the LDS groups, I don't know why it is, but we really struggle with this brotherhood concept. I don't know if we get so caught up in, we've got an important calling um, in our church. You're assigned two families to do what they used to call home teaching. Now they call it ministering. I don't know what it is. Like we, we just say, well, that's that's what I'm supposed to do. And then I'm too busy to go do other things. So I've been starting up like a monthly, we just call it breakfast burritos with bros. They just come to my house. We make burritos. We hang out. Like there's no other, you know, it's cheap. It's easy. It's fast. It's on a Saturday morning before things get busy. And um, I'm trying to do all these things to reach out locally because I love my band of brothers. Yeah. And yeah. I love my Boise band of brothers. I love the one up in Phoenix and Mesa, Gilbert area. But, um, and I love the, my band of brothers in Utah, but I need one locally. And God has told me like you, I've given you these guys who have an amazing heart and they're going to strengthen you. And then when you're home and local, you need to go strengthen others. And so I give, I get a lot from all of you. And, and then I go and give it out. And that's really what's changed my heart. And my wife's totally seen that. And um, I haven't really told a lot of the story about my wife. Sure. Um, but bottom line is when I disclosed 10 years ago, she was at first relieved because she finally had a name for what the crap was going on in her mar marriage and why I was so weird and mm -hmm. acting so defensively mm -hmm. and secretive Sorry. all the time. And then she was super angry and she left the house the next day. And that's that's been a cycle through time. Uh, the one other thing I want to say, because we, we just did a Hope and Healing Conference, uh, Kurt Franklin was a speaker last week um, up in, or two weeks ago up in Boise. And one of the things that came out from that is couples in recovery. And I'd never experienced couples in recovery, but there were couples that were sharing their story. And I started to realize that's the next step for my wife and I for to have true healing is we've got to work together on the 12 steps. We've got to work together on identifying the triggers because I'm triggering her and she's triggering me. And most of the time it has nothing to do with her. If she's triggering an abandonment wound for me, or she's triggering a, um, you know, I'm not feeling loved or whatever. And then I'm triggering things in her. So that's the, uh, that's my road right now. That's the next big step for me is to figure out how to recover as a couple. And I've done a lot of talking, but I think that's the majority of my story. Like I just cannot live without my brothers today. I had a couple phone calls in the morning and, um, I'll, I'll leave a voice message if they're not available, but I'll keep calling until I get somebody on, on good days. And when I do that, I don't have any issues with relapse. The day just, no matter what happens that day, just seems to go well. The days that I think, oh, I'll be fine today. Um, maybe I get by a couple of those days in a row, but eventually they come and get me. So what I'm really trying to learn to do and practice is to reach out all the time and to reach up to God all the time. Because before God was a great crisis manager, if my life mm. was in the crapper, then I went and found him. Right. Um, but if it was going well, I just thought, nope, I'm good, God. You don't have to worry about me today. You got all your other children. Don't worry about me, man. I'm good. So that's <laughs> that's the arrogance and the uh, insanity. Yeah. I, I got it figured out today, God. I don't need you today. <laughs> oh, oh, Lord, by NF, if you want a good soundtrack yeah. for that uh, for that dynamic. Um, so, Pete, I just want to ask, because this was a feeling I had often, you know, early in recovery. And so I'm like people to speak to it. So like you just kind of like, I mean, an hour, like, I mean, we could spend days to actually really honor your story and your experiences, what happened. So an hour is like a, like a freaking flyover, right? It's like, it's like fanning the pages of a book and then setting it down. And so from that perspective, right? Like I just know early in recovery, just being like, cause I had not experienced 
a change of heart in God or real healing for me. And like, so to, to people early in recovery or who have been trying to find it and feel like they can't find it when you just kind of like come into this space of like, yeah. And I just started calling all these guys and surrendering to God and God just showed up big and I'm, it's just different now. And I'm, and, and, and it's, it's awesome and changed and I'm loved. Like, it just sounds a little, like for those who are early recovery people like me that are like, cool, thanks for the Willy Wonka fairy tale story. What actually happened? So, so how, how would you, how would you speak to that guy that is just like, cool for you, I guess, if that's it, but like, how, how do you speak to the depth of what really happened? Yeah, I glossed over a lot of the details. Um, and it's still a daily practice that I have to focus on. I was scared to death. Uh, I had a sponsor. So one of the, one of the, the true beginnings of 12-step recovery for me is I took, I had a bunch of time off of work that I could take. They, they encouraged us or actually kind of forced us to take a month off every five years at my work to um, reconnect with family and just is is their idea of work-life balance. Give us your life for five years and we'll give you a week back. But uh, I was, at that point, I disclosed to my wife. Um, I had multiple relapses and she was done with the marriage. So I was actually considering going to a 90-day um, in-treatment program. They're thousands and thousands of dollars. I didn't have the money. So I decided I'd do my own at home. So here I am after traveling constantly for my my work, probably 40 weeks a year. Also, I'm home for six weeks. And I think, this is awesome. I'm going to connect with my wife. It's going to be so great. I drove her freaking crazy. She was ready to kill me. And so I was talking to my sponsor about it one day and he said, how many guy friends do you have? And I said, well, you know, I've got this guy at work. That guy goes, no, no, no. You're going down to Mexico because I live pretty close to Mexico. You get arrested. Who are you going to call? And I'm like, uh, my dad. <laughs> He's like, no. Who are you going to call? And so I'm like, you? He's like, I'm not going to come help you. Who are you going to call? So he said, I, he gave me a homework. He said, you're going to go get 12 guys because 12 is a good number. Six of them are going to be addicts and six of them are not going to be addicts. And they're going to become your band of brothers. He didn't call it a band of brothers, but he said, you're, this is yeah, going to become crew. your quorum, your group, your crew. Right. And you, you're not going to get them right away. And it's okay. This isn't an overnight homework. Just do it one at a time and get it done. So I started reaching out in the beginning to people and I wasn't getting any response back. And man, did that hurt the abandonment wound. Yeah. Man, did that um, PTSD of you're not worthy. And But I kept at it. And um that's why I joined SAL and I joined a couple other groups. And that's how I met Tony. Uh, I was in a 90 day online program where, where I was required to do a couple surrenders a week. And so I saw Tony on the calls and I was like, I kind of like the way Tony does things. He's kind of a no BS kind of guy. So I reached out to him. He's like, yeah, I'll do one a week with you. So I would start calling him and that was kind of an easier one, but then getting more, like my sponsor kept challenging me, like, you got to go find more. And, uh, it took a long time, but going to, to boot camp has really accelerated that. I mean, now I've got well over a dozen guys. Um, I don't know how many of you would bail me out of jail yet, but we'll get there eventually. <laughs> Give me a call. I'll call, see what I can do if you're in jail. Try not to get in jail, though, especially not in Mexico. But uh, I know I know a few people who might be able to spring you out. But if you, yeah, but if you were to name it, like, like just for you, like, like you're telling me this is real, Pete? Like the change is real? The healing's real? Yeah, I get scared sometimes that it's not. And then, but um, that's why I had to go. You know, I don't like to just beat the boot camp drum because, like, my local stick president and stuff, they're like, well, that's great for you, Pete, but what about all these guys that can't go? Um, but I don't know. That That's where I found my, my people. I found people that are willing to go yeah. 
to the very bottom. Uh, Theron's an excellent example of it. Seth has completely opened his heart to me. They're willing to go to the very bottom of their worst day of their life and share it with me. And then when I see them do that, I see that they've got scars, not wounds, and that they're able to talk to me about how Jesus saved them. And that's the kind of friends that I needed. Because here I was going to 12-step meetings every week, and I was hearing the same guys talk about the same relapse stories over and over again. And then they would disappear for years, and then they'd come back. And I was like, man, I just had this, this thing in my narrative in my mind that everyone does that. Like, there are no sober people. And um, when I expanded my circle to to the boot camp crew, uh, that got my circle a lot larger, and I got to meet people who were willing to go to those depths. And and again, like I said, I've been getting, I've been in a long period of receiving uh, for for over a year now, and uh, now God is saying, "Great, it's time for you to start giving too locally. You need to help awesome. find those guys who are just like you that were closeted, who are too nervous, who say that they're introverts, who um, who have their own trauma wounds of abandonment and stuff." And that's, yes, Stephen, there's no magic pill. There's no magic program. It just, it sucks. You got to just start doing it. And it hurts because people don't respond to you. Um, yeah. These these, these messages I send out, sometimes I send it, or I send them out about weekly or so. They go to over a hundred people. And some weeks I hear not a single thing back. But like when I was up in Boise, I had two guys come up to me and say, hey, I know I never respond to this, but thank you so much. I keep them there. Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard day. I go back and I reread some of them. And they just give me a lot of strength and a lot of hope. And I, I just really appreciate you doing that. So that's it. The, the answer is I have to give and not look for receive. But Love God that. and Christ do do give me the receive. And they've given it to me in abundance at this point. But in the early days, it was not in abundance and it was hard. Yeah. No, I love that. So as you know, as people share their stories, Pete, a song for you. So we wrap the episode here that to you represents your heart, recovery, hope, Pete, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us and just your openness and and your story. Love you, brother. Thank you. Love you guys too. So uh, for those of you who want to follow us on social media, it's at Unashamed and Afraid. Um, uh, go and visit the website, unashamedandafraid.com slash scholarships. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. And so if you are in need of a scholarship to come do a thing like boot camp, we do scholarships all the time for boot camp. And so if that resonates with you and other resources, we invite you to go to unashamedandafraid.com slash scholarships. And if you would like to donate and um, help fund those scholarships and uh, join, jump into the bonus content with us and Pete um, and become one of our outsiders, our outsiders are people like Pete who are bold, accepted, and unashamed and so would love to have you join us in our outsider efforts and to help with this movement and so that's unashamedunafraid.com slash donate give us five stars on itunes that's how the world judges us and populates all the feeds and all of those things and with that we're going to leave you with pete's song and remember it must be the live live version when you look it up god is an awesome god by michael w smith <laughs>